welcome to episode 48 of Literary Disco, Anything That Moves. Today is all about food and foodieism. We'll start with a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I will talk about our favorite food-related passages or works of literature. And then we'll talk about Dana Goodyear's new book that explores the chefs, critics, and pioneers of the latest food trends titled Anything That Moves. I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. What's up, guys? Good afternoon, sir. I just ate a corn dog, everybody. <laughs> a corn dog seems so anti-foodie. No, corn dogs are artisan now. Yeah, corn dogs are like comfort food, fancy shit. You know where? You know who has the best corn dog on earth? I swear to God, this is true. Is Disneyland? Disneyland has the best corn dog on earth. At the end of Main Street, there's a stand, a big red cart. And they sell corn dogs that are the length of a human arm. I think that's the, that's how they are specified. They have to be the length of a human arm. And have as much uh, meat content as a human arm as well. Maybe it's actually made from a human arm. They say it's actually Walt. <laughs> a, little bit of, a little bit of Walt goes into every corn dog. They're so good. My second favorite corn dog, I don't know if we're doing a whole bit on corn dogs. My second favorite corn dog is on the, uh, the pier in Santa Cruz. Uh, my third favorite corn dog is a corn dog I haven't had in like 35 years. It's a Pronto Pop served in Seaside, Oregon. Okay, wow. You guys are, or I guess Todd, just you, not you guys. <laughs> Way too into corn dogs. This is the first corn dog I've had in a really long time, and I have to say it was great. I put spicy honey mustard on it. It was awesome. Oh, that's nice. So we're talking about food today, right? Is that what we're talking about? Oh, yeah, we're already in. Because I'm, I'm getting hungry. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. So... Ryder, what, what's your favorite um, food passage? Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue to my favorite, where what I wanted to talk about. Because I actually don't like reading about food that much. Like, I don't find it that interesting. Like, even reading this Dana Goodyear book, I, I just kind of glaze over. I don't think that food... I don't know. So I actually was thinking about uh, great passages about hunger. Because oh. I really, for some reason, mm. I love reading about people being hungry. It's something that... I think is easier to relate to or something that's easier to convey than the sensuality or the exact description of food. I think it's mm -hmm. easier to describe the internal state of being hungry. And so I, I've already talked about on this podcast before um, Newt Hompson's book, Hunger, which is amazing. And it's all about a guy who's going, who's starving and he's kind of going insane while he's so hungry. And so that's an amazing book that captures the feeling of hunger. And then the other one that I wanted to talk about is uh, Movable Feast by Hemingway, mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. um, that's, you know, his nonfiction. Um, it's actually, he didn't publish it in his lifetime. It was collected from from writings that he had done about his time in Paris uh, after his death, and it was published by his uh, one of his ex-wives. But it's an amazing book in general, but one of the things he talks about is uh, being hungry and how that inspired him to write more. And, you know, he would go days just um, eating, like, bread and jam and drinking brandy and writing. That sounds and fucking it's, I don't fabulous, know. by the way. Yeah, yeah. it is. There's something, sounds you know, like the life. There's something really cool about it. You know, he just talks about sitting in these cafes and ordering little, you know, little meals. And there's something about it's It's, it's not descriptive of the food at all, you know, um... Actually, like, one of the most annoying things in the world, like, uh, this is a total side rant, but do you guys remember the movie, um, do you remember the movie, what was the movie, it was about angels with Nick Cage? City of Angels? And, yeah, City of Angels. Okay, so in that movie, there's this whole passage where they, they bond over their love of Hemingway. Oh, right. Do you guys remember yes. this at all? Yes. And they just, they I talk know. about, it's so stupid, because I they sit I close my there. eyes when anything, when people in movies talk about what writers they like, because it's yes. just such a signifier of what the, you know, what the writer wants them to seem I like. I typically close exactly. my eyes when... <laughs> so this whole conversation between the two of them is about how great Hemingway is at describing things, which is completely wrong. Right, like, right. the whole point of Hemingway is that he was blunt and didn't describe the... And they're like, when Hemingway describes a pear, it's like you're tasting the pear. It's like, no, it's not. It's He doesn't no, it describe it well at all. He just says, I ate the pear, period. It was good. You know, that's like the Hemingway. Anyway, so he does that, and it's... <laughs> and, and so what... But what he does describe is he... 
just the, the 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 state of being hungry and how that relates to the hunger that he feels as a writer to try and achieve the perfect sentence and you know so he just has like these great sentences like you know we we ate well and it was good mm-hmm. and for whatever reason i feel like movable feast just m- captures the experience of hunger and so because it captures hunger well when he does eat it's very simple but it it, it it's really satisfying in a way just reading it i don't know the other thing and this is a weirder one, is The Road uh, by Cormac McCarthy. Oh, I love I love a kid oh, on yeah. a spit. Is that Again. the road or is that Blood Meridian? Which one has the kid on the no. spit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is some cannibalism, right. but that's not, it's The Road that I think, right. yeah. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. The, again, it's about hunger, and the, the, the two main characters in the book are starving for passages, and then they finally find canned peaches. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading this book, and I wasn't hungry. Like I, you know, I had eaten maybe a couple hours before, but I got so hungry reading these passages. And then when they finally got their canned peaches, I was so satisfied just by reading them being satisfied because I had been been with them on this emotional journey of their hunger. So that I mean, that's really I I don't think you can describe foods very well, but I think you can describe hunger really well. You know, so you know what that reminds me of, Ryder mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. and Julia. Since you're here too, <laughs> there's yes. there's a wonderful book by Richard Russo called Straight Man, and throughout this Richard Russo novel, which is like 550 pages, the narrator, it's a first person narrator, uh, is having like a urinary tract problem and can't. Piss, oh. and for 500 pages is just dribbling urine out, and for 500 pages is just building and building and building in you as you read, and it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, a, what a great way to give ineffable tension to every moment because you yes. know what that feeling is like yes. of having to go to yeah, the bathroom, yeah, yeah. and then it's like the opening of Buffalo 66. Yeah, yeah exactly. Where Vincent Gallo has yes. to pee and he can't piss. <laughs> oh my god, it's the worst. Yes. It's so frustrating to watch. You're just so tense. And it's also because it's like, and I'm sure men and women have these dreams equally, where you have to pee when you're asleep and you have a dream where you have mm-hmm. to pee and you can't pee. Totally. And oh, then yeah. you wake up, you're like, oh, wait, I can pee, but not not in the bed right. anymore, because I stopped right. doing that. Um, you, oh, yeah, you get the double relief. Yeah, exactly. You get the, you get the relief <laughs> from the dream, and you get the actual physical relief. No, I always wake up and go, did I piss the bed? And then I go, no. <laughs> and then I lie there and think, well, I don't really have to pee. Do I, do I have to get up? I can just go back oh, yeah. to sleep for a couple more hours. And then it's like, no, I am dreaming about peeing. That means I have to get up and pee, and I'm going to be up. Oh. We're already old. What a great sad. old curmudgeon you're going to be. Yeah. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Honey, did I piss the bed? I'm going oh. back to sleep. Oh, man. I can't wait till I can just wear diapers. <laughs> hey, you know, there's nothing stopping you right now, Ryder, from going yeah, down to the right CVS and uh, getting yourself a package. I'd like to see that on TMZ. Ryder Strong <laughs> spotted yeah. at CVS with some defense. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Julia? Um, well, I was thinking, you know, and stop me if if I've told this story before because I actually think about it. So whenever I think of food writing, I think about um, this period of my life where I was living and working in Ghana. And for a couple of months, I was in a really remote area and I pretty much ate the exact same thing, three meals a day, every day, which was fufu which is basically like a bland blended chunk of like cassava it's like eating flavorless play-doh mm. it's kind of i used you to know, eat like a classic, shitload just... of play-doh by the way <laughs> just an absolute <laughs> fucking shitload it was so good and salty you were you were with that kid huh? <laughs> oh god did you eat paste too oh fuck yeah paste chalk <laughs> Uh, whatever. <laughs> whatever Rizal Bunkadine had, I ate. This is, this is explaining quite a lot. I know. Lead paint. You ate it oh, all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just suck on the paint chips. I would disassemble, <laughs> I would disassemble thermometers and just take that mercury down. <laughs> mercury shots. <laughs> so anyway, so while I was living there, um, I had like five or six books with me. And one of them was an extremely poor choice to bring with me, which was uh, Jeffrey Steingarten, who's a great food writer who I love, his book, um, The Man Who Ate Everything. And it was just food writing, describing, you know, fancy foods, but also The Man Who Ate Everything contains a lot of essays and reviews about regular foods. Like there's a long essay that I will never forget about ketchup and all the different kinds of ketchup there are. 
And I would read this book obsessively, obsessively, like over and over. It was <laughs> just craving. At this point, I've been living abroad for a long time. So I was got to the point where if I didn't eat pie, like pie was all I can think about. Oh, There's a great essay in about it. Because pie is, A, my favorite food. And my favorite part of a pie is the crust. Mm. And there's a review in it about how he, like, finds and tastes all these crusts and tries to make the perfect pie crust. So that is, whenever I think about food writing, I think about that. Because as you're saying, Ryder, you know, being hungry or even being, like, spiritually hungry for different kinds of foods was just such an extreme, you know, experience at the time. I mean, and I, I don't think I've had a hunger like that in forever because everything is available now. Right. You know, I mean, I can eat anything anytime I want. And... That's great. Although there is no good Chinese food in Connecticut. That's, that's something I think about. <laughs> that's the title of a memoir right there. On a fairly regular basis. No good Chinese food but in also, Connecticut. Essays by Julia Pistel. Oh, my God. It's it's really one of the major drawbacks of living around here. Um, but also, you know, now I'm thinking of, like, memorable meals, because I know that's what Todd's going to talk about. Well, I'm talking about two things, and but in yes. This, <laughs> in, this same amount of time, <laughs> in this same amount of time, I ate... Um, Probably the most adventurous thing I've ever eaten, which we're going to talk about in a minute with the book, but um, my host father like went out into the woods and he's like, have you ever eaten bush cat? And I was like, I don't know what that is. And then he went out and he killed some animal in the woods and he like pulled and it basically looked like a groundhog, but, and I ate it not raw, but I, it's the only thing I've eaten that I have no idea what I actually ate. Because bush cat is a general term for any small animal running around. So, yeah. So, in that time where I wanted pie so bad, I ate a bush cat. It was good. Bush cat. God. It was really good. Would you eat that? Would you eat a bush cat? Well, you know, I was having this conversation with my wife before the show about what I would and would not eat. And it would really depend upon the situation. So, if I'm in someone's home and they've made a meal, or I'm traveling and someone has taken me to some restaurant and given me some food, the rules of decorum, I'm, I'm going to eat what they give me. But I wouldn't necessarily go out and say, hey, you know what I want? I want a, I want a mountain dog or, <laughs> you know. Bush cat. Bush cat. <laughs> I, I, want, I want whatever the local flora and fauna and beef-like substance is. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, we'll talk about this when we talk about the book, but I think... The older I've gotten, the less uh, willing I am to eat things for ethical reasons. Like I don't, I don't want to eat a lot of things that I, I think are um, thoughtful animals. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I right, think that plays a role. All right, why don't you hang on to that thought because that is so related to the book. Tell us your stories. Well, so there's there's a couple things. So I don't know if either of you guys know this, but for two years I was the food critic for Palm Springs Life magazine. And Whoa, I didn't, yes. I did not know that. Yeah, so this was, oh gosh, I guess this was like 2002, 2003, somewhere was in there. That, is, I mean, that's one of those jobs I imagine a lot of people want and think is really cool, but then is not as cool as they imagine. Was it well, like a dream it, job or was it kind no, of No, it, it wasn't a dream job for a very simple reason, which is that Palm Springs Life magazine is a magazine that is driven by advertorials. And so when they would have... A future story on a restaurant, a you know a review of a restaurant. It was a restaurant that was an advertiser, oh, yeah. and so you couldn't be honest about what you're eating. It was more like a profile and then a brief talk about what was great on the menu. Um, yeah. And so that I mean that was a challenge because there are some places that I went to that were disgusting, but you know had uh, you know a big advertising budget with the magazine at the time. Um, and this was you know, this was like ten years ago, but. There, there would be places that I would go to that I would really enjoy, and I would write up a nice thing. I remember there was one particular restaurant that I absolutely love. I won't say the name of it because it's still open, but I loved it. Great food, and I, I wrote uh, this very glowing review of it, and I, I said something along the lines of, uh, I, I, it was a malaprop that no one caught, and I said that the, you know, the coup de gras of the of the meal was the dessert. And, you know, coup de gras is the killing blow. And so I got mm -hmm. this hate mail from the chef and from their publicist saying, how dare you compare this meal to a murder? And I'm like, I was trying to be oh nice. Oh, my God. Um, it, so it was a strange job. And, and But it also was really skewed because they would know that I was 
coming because obviously I'd come in and I'd interview the chef and we'd have a photographer there and we'd do all that. And then I'd be waited on hand and foot, um, you know, by the, 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 the best waiter there. And, you know, they, they brought me the food and they wouldn't charge me for it frequently. And then I'd be paid to ride it. it so it was a very strange job. And it was sort of the antithesis of what Jonathan Gold does, which is someone we'll talk about, I suspect, a lot when we talk about this book, mm -hmm. which is that you know, he, he gives an unbiased critique. Um, mm -hmm. But this was not an unbiased critique. And then later, places that I had reviewed would ask me to write advertorials for them that would then appear in paid advertising sections in the magazine. Yeah. So that it was sucks, a really man. strange that's thing. Super but shady. That's wrong. It, it is wrong. Um, <laughs> and it's not exactly great journalism. But, you know, I think you see that in a lot of, like, you know, lifestyle magazines. You know, Palm Springs Life magazine is a magazine that sits on the table of every, you know, uh, hotel room. You know, hotel room, coffee table in, in the city. It's not meant to be, or it wasn't, you know, this, again, this was, this was a decade ago, so it's probably different now. But it wasn't meant to be the New York Times. It was just meant to be a, a glossy reflection of a fantasy land. So that, that, that's one thing. And my, my favorite writing... Um, of a meal is actually in a movie, um, and it is the movie Quiz Show. There's a wonderful scene where it's a birthday party, and the father, if you haven't seen the movie Quiz Show, it's about the, the Quiz Show scandals and the Van Doren family and Charles Van Doren, who received the answers to the $64,000 question, or 21, I think it was, um, and you know hides the information from his father, who was a, a great uh, scholar at Columbia University. But at any rate, there's this great scene where they're all sitting around a, a table outside for a birthday party in Connecticut, as it happens. And uh, there's 20 people at the table, and they're having this huge literary discussion, and the father and son are bickering about quotes from Shakespeare while they're cutting a cake and eating food. And it's just this great moment of wonderful dialogue back and forth that shows the subtext of the relationships between a father and son, and then all of these satellites that revolve around this very wise and interesting man who is the patriarch of this family and the son who will never quite measure up to him. And it's just a, a beautiful scene. And, and it's all about, you know, what is, um, you know, what you, was expected around a, a table, you know. And it's a whole different world and filled with different rules when you're eating at a table with people. You know, it's, it's, it's the most unusual politics of place I think exists because if someone does something horrible to you, you're like, that person came and ate in my home. And it's, it's a worse indignity than if they, you know, if they'd never stepped foot in your house. Well, it's the whole, the whole concept of breaking bread, right? right? Like, when you, when you eat across from somebody, when you eat a meal with somebody, it's, it's a bonding experience. Mm -hmm. It's definitely, yeah. That's something I've, I've thought about. It's like, my parents were very like, you know, do whatever you want, you know, have your friends over. You know, they were very free and let my brother and I kind of do whatever we want, but every night we had dinner together. Mm -hmm. It was like, yeah. every night we would sit at the table and have dinner together, and we could bring our friends, and like, but if, if we were not going to be at home to eat, like, that was a bigger deal than anything else we could do, mm -hmm. you know? Like, they didn't care where we went right. or what we did that much, but they really cared about making sure that, you know, if more than a day or two had gone by where we hadn't had a family dinner, that was like a transgression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting fun fact that the listeners might not know. But every time Julia and I have eaten a meal with one another, no matter where we are in the world, doesn't matter how many other people are eating with us, Julia and I always end up sitting across from each other. We've been at 20-person dinners when I just look up and <laughs> gaze into Todd's eyes. It's like, what the hell are you doing here? Were you guys, hold on, were you guys at the same table at my wedding? Yeah. Yeah. She, she sat, sat across, across from me. Jesus, so I didn't even break the tradition. <laughs> there was one time even where we were this was last year we were in boston and uh we ended up sitting next to each other at a place called mr sushi and the meal was disgusting and horrible and julia got sick at the end of it and that's why <laughs> and that's why because we weren't across from one another yeah my body can't digest unless i'm looking at you <laughs> and that's the quote for the episode <laughs> Welcome back to the disco. 
Hopefully everybody got a snack during the no pause between segments that you guys have. Um, (laughs) I myself made popcorn and Ryder made tea. So today we are talking about a book called Anything That Moves, subtitle, Renegade Chefs, Fearless Eaters, and the Making of a New American Food Culture by Dana Goodyear. And Dana Goodyear... Um, she seems like a great person. She is a staff writer at the New Yorker. <laughs> she doesn't seem like a Nazi or that she was part oh of the, gosh, no. uh, you know, anything in Vietnam. She just seems like a good writer who's curious about interesting things, which we like. Um, right. So she writes for the New Yorker and she teaches at the University of Southern California. And she has written a lot of poetry, actually. So she's got... Let's see. Yeah, she's got poems published in The New Yorker, in The Daily Beast, all kinds of places. So look her up. She seems cool. All right. That's pretty much all we know about her. Um, So are you guys ready to talk about anything that moves? I was surprised to find that I had actually read most of these articles before. Um, A lot, Not a lot, but I think three or four of these chapters had appeared in The New Yorker, I guess, or somewhere else, because Mm -hmm. I kept finding myself, Mm -hmm. which made me realize that I must have been seeking out articles about food, or like that these subjects Uh were fascinating to me um, already, because I I knew some of these stories. Um, So I was, and they're obviously expanded a little bit more, but, um, you know, I don't know how to feel about this book. It's a really, it's, it's a, it's a nice... I guess they, I I think ultimately I I think they work better as articles as a whole book. I'm hmm. a little confused mm-hmm. as to how to feel about the whole the things that she describes and the worlds that she dives into, which maybe is a good thing because it's it shows an objectivity on her part that she's not coming with an agenda. But I think when it comes to 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 the, the issues that she encounters, um, you know, issues of ethical treatment of animals or um, raw food mm-hmm. movements. And I kind of wish she had gotten a little heavier hitting about it and asked them the tougher questions. She kind of skirts the the issue, shows some other people's opinions, and then backs away. And um, so I feel like it's a good intro to some of these ideas and subjects, but as like a, a defining book about food culture and where we're headed... I, 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 th- I think we can go deeper, and I, I want somebody to dig a little deeper. Yeah, it has that very restrained New Yorker quality, which is, I think, where some of these were published. Yeah, I agree with you, Ryder. There's no kind of major thesis statement to me that really came, shone through. I mean, at times I was surprised by how much I had to switch gears because I didn't realize until about halfway through that they were articles. You know, it's basically a collection marketed as a one statement on American food culture. So, yeah, yeah, I almost wish they were more distinct. Like, um, if it had just been a collection mm-hmm. of essays, I probably would have been less harsh about it. But as it was, I was like, okay, so you just gave us a portrait of this food critic, Jonathan Gold, for instance, which is the portrait that the opening chapter is about. Uh, and, you know, he's he's an interesting dude. Like, and he revolutionized the way a lot of food critics thought about, you know, food. And because he decided to go all along Pico Boulevard, which is the big street that runs basically all through L.A. to the ocean and um, has all these diverse, you know, goes through a lot of diverse neighborhoods and decided to just eat at every food stand or restaurant along Pico Boulevard for a year, which is a great idea. And, you know, and it's sort of he opened up the the, the notion that, you know, good food can be from a street cart as equally as it could be from an exclusive, expensive restaurant. And, you know, so he's an interesting guy, but then, like, I don't really, like, after that portrait, you know, after we get this little portrait of him, he kind of pops up again, And but I just didn't, I I, I don't know, I didn't know what, what we, I was supposed to feel about him, because I was kind of like, all right, you're cool, you, you seek out these restaurants, but how does that relate to, like, the later profile of the guy who does the pop-up restaurants in L.A.? Like, are we, mm-hmm. is there something that connects these two guys? Um, and I guess... Well, I, yeah. I think there is. I mean, I think I think what Danny Goodyear is writing a lot about, and I think what the overall the thesis is, and and you know, I, I wouldn't presume that that when she was writing the article, she was thinking about this as the larger thing at first, but clearly it develops, is that there's a culture now that that exists because of both people like Jonathan Gold who are willing to go to these strange restaurants and talk about them, and, and Jonathan Gold. For those of you who are not familiar with him, he he's the first food writer to ever win the Pulitzer Prize. Um, but so Jonathan Gold, and then someone who has a pop-up restaurant or an art or a, you know a, a three-star Michelin chef or whomever it might be, 
But all of a sudden, in the last 20 years, seemingly, what, what you used to associate with indie rock, for instance, where people are saying, oh, my God, you know, I'm eating food that you've never even heard of. Um, right. And I'm so, I'm so into this food or that food or whatever, and you'll never know. That's become this really unique subculture that, that I don't think existed before, and I think that's what she's tapping into. Which I can't stand. Like that, that is so obnoxious to me. Like that, that whole idea of like I'm the, the hipsterism of foodieism. Like mm-hmm. oh my god, that is obnoxious. I, I and that's hard for me to get over. You know, and it kind of permeated a lot of this book, and that was hard for me to. Oh, I mean, it, it, it yeah. is the book. I mean, that that's yeah. what well, they're talking I don't know. about. The bo- I mean, and for I think- me, the best part of the book is the, in the beginning of section two. She goes into the history. Well. There's two parts of the book that I really like. I love her section on insects because it, yeah. it Me really... Too. That was my favorite. You know, she talks about how much uh, other cultures eat insects and then this question of why can't we, uh, as sort of you know a, a nation descended of uh, European traditions, get over our hang-up? Because if we could eat insects, it would be so good for the world. And like that right. was fascinating, right. and that really messed with my head because I could never eat an insect. Like I just can't. And really? to recognize you that You couldn't that, eat a oh, chocolate-covered... Yeah. Ant. No, I thought you know when I went to Thailand when I was like nineteen or whatever, I thought, all right, I'm gonna do it while I'm there because I had heard that you know on the street carts you can find some stuff, and I was like, oh, I'm totally gonna do it. The second I saw those bugs lying <laughs> on a table, deep fried in a skewer, I couldn't. I was like, there is no way in hell I could do. It. I just can. I'm never gonna be able to. No. So I ate a grasshopper taco in DC last year, and oh. it took a minute, Ooh. but it was. It was good, but I, I, I guess never so. got to the point that was like, I'm just enjoying something. I was like, I'm eating bugs, I'm eating bugs, I'm eating bugs. You know, it was right. in a way that but, I'm no longer connected to, and I'm this is the hipster foodie ar- argument, but in a way that I don't right. think I'm eating a chicken, I'm eating a chicken, I'm eating a chicken when I eat chicken tenders at midnight right. in the pub downtown, you know? Right, because it, it, the chicken tender has no relationship to the actual animal. But but he, here here's the thing is that the eating bugs it it makes so much sense the way Danny Goodyear explains it and and the idea that it's you know we couldn't exhaust the bug population um, fast enough to eat it basically which is the problem that we're having now with animals um, is that I will eat a shrimp and I will eat a lobster and they're no different fundamentally you know in appearance than a cricket. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I don't have that problem. Or a crab. I'll eat those things. And I, I'm aware of when I'm eating a crab leg that I'm eating a crab leg. I'm busting it open and eating it. Um, but there's something about it being, you know, just that rudimentary bug that you're scared of and that creeps you out and that you kill that you'd never think to eat it. it that one, that really fucked with my head. I, I agree with you, Ryder. But what's interesting is that you're forced to recognize that it's a cultural association, right? Right. Because obviously other cultures have no problem. And kids have less of a problem eating bugs than adults right. so it's clearly just our programming um which is oh, absolutely. which is unfortunate because now you know it would be nice to for us to eat bugs it'd be so easy i think in an apocalyptic scenario i could be convinced to eat bugs really fast i think that sure. it would sure or, or let me just say i would could become a convert if this becomes a major food source or if i were to live somewhere you know, where people ate bugs all the time. I think I could adjust pretty fast. Mm-hmm. I could do people before bugs. People before bugs? Be- <laughs> <laughs> We're talking post doc Do you have anyone in particular you're thinking uh, of? Just the enemy tribe, you know, whatever. The other people in the warehouse across the way. Piggy. If we get a hold of them. Accident. All right, yeah, so here's a big question. Like, if someone was killed by accident, and you're starving, would you go for them first or like a tarantula? That's the big question. A tarantula. Yeah, yeah I, I, think it, I think I would probably eat yeah, a tarantula. I don't, <laughs> obviously. Have they been cooked in butter? I mean, that's, that's the thing that she talks about is that if you season something, most anything just tastes like mm-hmm. the seasoning. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that's something that I mentioned earlier is that moral leap mm-hmm. that we make. And, and I, I don't know if you guys thought about this at all. There's a section in the book. Uh, the details of sushi restaurant in um, in Los Angeles called uh, the Hump. Yeah. Is that what it's called? The Hump. Uh-huh. That was shut down for uh, selling whale meat. Mm-hmm. And I, I could not stop thinking when I was reading that section about blackfish and about 
the about Tillicum and the essay we read about him and how you know before I was aware of all of that stuff I you know the idea of eating a whale is absurd to me because it's a sentient creature and and the same reason I wouldn't eat a dog because I have a relationship with dogs you know I have love for my animals but if you if you don't have that that connection if you don't feel like dolphins or dogs or whales are thoughtful creatures or monkeys or chimps or whatever maybe you don't have that problem you know maybe well, where you draw the line is the interesting if you're not educated question. to it or yeah that's right, that's the right. thing i don't and i don't know like what what level of connection do you have to have before you have to eat it with it because if you spent time with a pig i mean pigs are smarter than dogs you know in terms of like what they mm-hmm. right. learn and but we've decided that they're completely edible and you know that they're not allowed right. in the house but the truth is, it, you, I don't know, yeah, she has a great line about that. She says, uh, to, but to be upset about the animals we identify with leads us helpless towards hypocrisy. Um, and right. it's a great right. line because it's true. Like, unless you're a complete vegetarian, you really you, saying you're not going to eat horse is like, why? Why not? Yeah, that's, it's completely arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Would you guys eat a horse? Not a horse, not like a whole horse, but <laughs> would well, you guys eat a see, horse? See, I have a... Pr- I, I have a problem because I was connected to a barn. You are. Because <laughs> <laughs> Todd was a horse girl growing up. So. Yeah, oh, so it's a little it's a little hard for me as a horse girl. You know, girl guys, to, we get a lot of feedback on that horse girl comment, yeah. and I think the world <laughs> sides with me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the horse thing is an argument that she spends some time talking mm-hmm. about, and there's not we won't we won't give up everything in the book, but there's. There's at the same restaurant where they're selling whale. There's the presumption that the people are also eating horse because that's what the people at the sushi restaurant are telling you is that you're also having horse meat. But then they test and it just turns out to be beef. And it's that forbidden thing that makes it attractive. Right, yeah, it goes think, back to the hipster makes it expensive. insiderism. Right. Of, and I just think it's so little. Is it? Is it actually about the food? You know, like even in the later chapters right. when they talk about this restaurant animal, which is I've actually been to. It's here in L.A. Um, it, you know, it's one of these places where they they serve every part of the animal and pig's ears and you know bacon chocolate. It's like you know, it's crazy weird stuff. Head cheese, um, which is brains, and uh, mm-hmm. and then they, she talks about the the pop up restaurants and the sort of like rock and roll guy who does these pop up mm-hmm. you know epicurean extravaganzas. And I just feel like so little of it is actually about the taste of the food and more about like the exclusiveness of it. And that's something I wish this book had right. touched on a little bit more is class. Because I find I find that so much of the foodie culture is has a complicated relationship to class. Because even like Jonathan Gold, who, you know, he he seems to really prioritize food that he considers from traditional places, which really is mm-hmm. about poverty. You know, it's about food mm-hmm. that was created out of necessity. It's like, oh, we had to eat the tails because, you know, we were starving. Right. Right, and that right, right. that to him elevates it. So it's like this kind of reverse classism, right? Like the, the the sort of poorer and more traditional and they talk about like, oh, this is third generation Chinese food or whatever. Yeah. And like dismissing right. restaurants if they're too uh, well off or too Americanized or something. But then you have, you know, the exclusivity of you know, restaurants in Vegas where they're shipping in these mushrooms. And I don't know, it just seems so much of it is about money and about having money Mm -hmm. and having, you know, having uh, some sort of access to more expensive or more exclusive foods. And I don't know, it's a complicated issue. And like I said, Jonathan Gold seems on one side of it and then a lot of the other people that she profiles are on the other side. But it, it, it really, it just comes down to, like, this is a rich person's problem, <laughs> you know? like Or it's a rich person's issue, like caring about where your food comes from so much or caring about what your food, the quality, the experience of dining. Like, I don't know. I just, right. I, I, I have a weird, I have a hard time with it. I'm not sure where I fall on. I just kind of wanted to point that out. And I feel like the book doesn't address it enough for me, this issue of class. How do you guys oh, feel yeah. about I mean, it? I felt when I was reading it, I, I was like, this is just, this is going to be too LA of a book for me to like connect with. Right. Like this is mm-hmm. in no way reflects any experience that I have ever had, which is okay. Plenty of books don't. But, it, I mean, it's insane. And, I mean, I've eaten some interesting things and been some interesting places. But it's hard for me to imagine this lifestyle where you are 
just taking this risk or adventure so often that I worry, I guess, for these people that they don't even remember, like, what the pleasures of eating are, you know? Right. It's just about proving right. something to yourself or whatever. And also, from, like, a food reviewing point of view, you know, it's so hard to imagine reviewing something where you don't have a preconceived notion of how it's going to taste or feel or, mm-hmm. you know, be experienced, which is... Which I guess it could be a big plus, but it's also, you know, like, review macaroni and cheese, you know what you're looking for. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Review brains and slugs and stuff, you don't know. Oh, and I just I just remembered something, and a hilarious line, I'm going to forget if I don't bring it up. But something <laughs> that really made me laugh was they were talking about serving adventurous foods to kids, and this mm-hmm. is in the bug section. And the kids were perfectly willing to eat these, like, big slimy grubs, but the food uh preparers, I forget who it was, are so disconnected from how kids actually eat that they served it to them on kale and kids don't like kale. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I, I think that. that's perfectly what you're talking about, Ryder, because it's like what do actual regular people enjoy and not enjoy in their food? You know, like the kids aren't in them for the adventure. They'll try anything, but if something's gross, something's gross, period, no matter what it is. Well and that that sort of that feeds into this sort of weird thought that I was having while I was reading it about, and this, it it has to do with the culture too, which is that the idea that they're not just eating to fill themselves, they're eating it in some form of competition, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, I I think folds back into the competition culture that you have on these food TV shows, you know, that food TV propagates. um, And not to say that I don't watch them because I do, I watch them all. You know, I watch Chopped, I watch, you know, world's next best cupcake or whatever it might be or iron chef or you know watch all those things um the food truck shows but the idea that they're competing the people are competing essentially to eat the craziest thing to be able to say oh you know i i ate a living animal or you know they killed an eel and then i ate it right afterwards Mm -hmm. there's that weird angle to it that the kids don't have the kids are just you know up for an experience but part of me started thinking they're they're competing to eat living things you know that mm. you know i'm not a vegetarian but in the last two years I've, I've stopped eating red meat um and i've been thinking more and more in the last uh, you know two years or so about what i eat and um the ethics behind the things that i eat and at some point i was like you know what the, they are turning the life of this animal into a a entirely different kind of sport. I'm all for eating animals. I don't have I don't have a problem with it. Um, but it's not it's not about sustaining your life. It's about killing something for your your well, it's a enjoyment sensual, that isn't right? even about like, the yeah, taste. You're, yeah, you're obsessing over the sensuality of your own personal private experience and like right. to make th- th- your consumption so fucking important kind of bothers me. It's mm-hmm. like because there's 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 yeah, that's, there's a that's level the thing. of, of the, the foodie movement or the gourmet food movement that makes sense to me, which is the level of like we don't have to eat crap. Like take time to prepare. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's like if you're gonna make mac and cheese. Why not make it really good mac and cheese with like a cool cheese that's mm-hmm. you know from this goat cheese that you know whatever or put some mushrooms in it that taste really good like that kind of foodism which is I think more like what the TV what started mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. the chef movement the chef TV shows mm-hmm. and stuff was that idea of like we don't have to settle for crap anymore like we are a really evolved nation and we can communicate with each other over the internet and stuff and find better ingredients and how to prepare things better that i'm totally behind but the Mm -hmm. like taking it to the next step of like uh you know bone marrow and like i don't know it just it reaches a certain degree of almost selfishness or um i don't know i get uncomfortable with it it's not unlike hunting, you know? It's very similar. It's like, I'm going to go out, I'm going to find this thing, I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to put put it in my body. Like, and that's your trophy, <laughs> you know? It's, it's really, I, I agree with you. But there are other levels in between, though, what you're saying, Ryder. And mm-hmm. I'm on board, I think, with maybe even more than you are. I, I like the focus on local food. I think that is yeah, probably a good place for the world to go. But also, you know, I'm really up for any anything in america that makes people more adventurous like i like at first glance i like this movement because you know nothing annoys me on this earth more than dietary restrictions like i have no dietary (laughs) restrictions at all 
<laughs> you know, there I will eat or drink anything. Um, and I have no allergies, nothing. And in the beginning, she says, like, so-and-so had no restrictions, which was very unusual. And I was like, wow, really? Is that really that unusual that people won't list 10 things they don't like or don't want? So pushing this, you know, this movement, pushing people to be adventurous or at least open-minded, sure. I think, is good. Sure. But when it becomes – but how do you, like, control something from being laid back to, like, type A? You know, there's there's – laid back sure i'll try the bugs on the kale salad too i must try bugs on kale salad or else or else dot 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 well and i think by putting this book largely in los angeles and she she goes around a little bit you know when she's talking about the history of sort of artisan foods but having it in the the borders of los angeles county in essence you know you're you're focusing on a particular kind of person a lot of Mm -hmm. times also and you know she's dealing with people that are in Hollywood or on the fringes of Hollywood or, you know, are, are trying to be cool for whatever that mm-hmm. is. Not that there's anything wrong with any of that. Not anything wrong with any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> but the guy cool? living on the you fringes know, of Hollywood. <laughs> it says all of, you know, all of us, basically. But I, what I kept wondering is, okay, if you take this subject and you go to Boise or you go to, um, well, I guess, you know, maybe Boise is a college town, so maybe they have it, or Portland or, or wherever. I'm, I'm wondering if, what she's experiencing in Los Angeles with these, these the raw food movements and all that, if it's different in in Houston, oh, yeah. you know, if it's different in Louisville, you know, so I don't know. I don't she's think talking so, about this I movement. Like I think it's but, different. It's do? different. Yeah. Well, first, I'm telling you, when I read this, I immediately was like, oh, this is about L.A., you know, mm-hmm. within probably 50 pages, um, because it's just a different. I mean, I think that a lot of people would have these impulses or give in to them or whatever, but L.A. has the culture to make it happen. You know, every it, everything can be in that geographical space. It's such a melting pot of different foods. You know, it's people. L.A. is populated by a lot of people who've gone out there to have some adventure or live some dream, just like New York. So they're mm-hmm. a lot more willing than a fifth-generation, you know, kid who's, you know, never had the guts to try out for the baseball <laughs> team. You know, it's just a different, you know, it's a different city culture. But right. I, I do think that the, um, that this, these impulses manifest in different ways. So like in LA where you have to be like cool and skinny and hot all the time, but still adventurous, they're eating like tiny pieces of brains in Houston there. That's where you're getting these like Paula Dean type you know, crazy adventures like how much can we eat or how... How much fat right. can we have? Right. Or man versus food or whatever that show was where it's like, right. Right. I'm going right. to have a heart attack, but I'm going to eat everything. So, yeah, they're right. like they're like cousins of the same idea, but it is... I definitely have not eaten food like this in Connecticut, but maybe that's just because I'm poor and lame. <laughs> but but I think, you know, what, what she points out a lot in the book is that I mean, there's the side that Ryder was talking about, which is about the the wealth associated with it. But there's also just a, it's a lot of peasant food too, and I think that's what Jonathan Gold at first made his bones on. Is you know, and she talks about this in the book. Is Jonathan Gold figured out you know when there was a big migration of you know people from certain cities in Mexico based on the street food in different segments of Los Angeles. Um, or you know what the migration from different parts of Asia were in the San Gabriel Valley based on the sort of restaurants that were opening up. And I found that, on a sociological level, absolutely fascinating because they are transporting that peasant food from where they weren't in a land of opulence to a place where they could eat better if they right. wanted mm-hmm. to. They have that opportunity. But it, it got me thinking about... Um, Jewish delis, a place I'm intimately familiar mm-hmm. with. And, you know, it's, we, we eat the food that, I eat the food in Jewish deli or that I make at home that my grandparents ate that they brought from Russia. And it's peasant food. It's all that they could get. It's the egg noodle. Um, and, you know, there's, there is a, an interesting sort of uh, genetic comfort that comes along with that peasant food that I think then when, a different culture comes into it and says, oh, we're going to co-opt 
whatever this is, it takes it out of that realm. And all of a sudden you're like, if, if that's your culture, you can look at it and say, oh, you know, what are you doing eating my food? You know, this, is, this doesn't belong to you. And so I think there's, there is that, that war that's going to be waged, not a, a literal road warrior style, but I think there's, there's going to be that pushback of this, this isn't your culture, right. this doesn't well, belong to you. Authenticity, right? I mean, that's what, that's what Jonathan mm-hmm. Gold is sort of always seeking, is authenticity. But I guess for me, authenticity in food and culture is always kind of it's 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 sort of a nebulous idea and it's and it's a tough project you know when, once you start yeah. saying oh this is more authentic than than the other food cart down the street or right. it's just it's messy you know like authenticity is a very messy concept and especially with food it's it's just oh, yeah. it's hard and and i feel like there's plenty of examples throughout this book of where authenticity has been clearly the result of marketing and mm-hmm. and salesmanship, right. you know, and showmanship, mm-hmm. and she talks about that explicitly, and it, that sickens me, you know, that like that that these these things are, you know, caviar, for instance, is being char- charged for so much because it's authentic, or you know, I don't know, I just I found right. that uh, that right. whole that whole section and that whole concept just frustrating to me that people are spending so much money in Las Vegas, you know, and. And it, there's no questions of sustainability. Like there's no there's no consideration of that, and um, there's no, no consideration none. of you know the 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 people that make the food really, or you know I don't know. It's just mm-hmm. I just had I I couldn't get that out of my head, and I couldn't stop being like, God, can we just American food culture is so selfish and and irresponsible in so many ways, and then. When we try and be responsible, like the raw food people, they're just idiots. You know, like they're making horrible arguments <laughs> that are not based they, on they science at all. Like, <laughs> they're and terrible right. business and it's, people. It's, terrible business Yeah, people. that was an interesting. I had read that article when she published that article in the New Yorker. That I love. She talks. It's a that whole section of the raw. <laughs> Rossum is the name of their place. Yeah. And they were like getting <laughs> illegal raw them. milk and it became this whole market like drug dealing community in Los Angeles. It's fascinating. Uh, and I had read that article and they got busted by the um, the Food and Drug Administration. But I don't know, man. That they it's it, I mean some of the stuff that they were saying was interesting. You know, they're saying basically the government should stay out of our food, which is I mean, I, I, you know, a lot of people are anti-Monsanto and genetics, and I'm sort of on the fence about it. My feeling is, like, I don't like the idea that corporations who have the bottom line money as their primary concern, the fact that those people are controlling food always kind of scares me. Like, I feel like food should be more local and more person-to-person relationship uh, as far as an exchange. But, um... But those people are insane. Like, you know, they're, yeah. Oh, I mean, it's at the anti-vaccination level of right. like, right? Who cares what's in it? Yeah. Nom 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 nom. Yeah, because when you read like yeah. about the what, the pasteurization, how many children it saved when it was discovered, right? Process, you're like, yeah. yeah, this is probably better. I don't care if your milk tastes more like cow butt and you enjoy that. Like, that <laughs> that's not worth risking. You know, deregulating this whole food industry like we should have some regulations it makes perfect yeah. sense to me and it, there's there's a fascinating bit where the uh the the ultra raw food folks are at a basically a tea party rally a uh, tea party convention so together fascinating. because it's it's the you know get the government out of everything and then in addition it's the get the government out of my food people and it's these hippies and you know a hundred tea party sheriffs that are together and it's you don't you don't think of them having um, a similar political view, but when you get that far back and you're that libertarian, um, it, it's not that you know it, it's pretty close to related. You know, at the at the farthest end, it's as radical as any other radical group is going to be. It could be radical political, radical religious, radical anything. Once you get that far out, everyone's going to seem insane to you. And I think I think. Dana Goodyear does a really good job of of drawing a picture of that particular subculture married to the other subculture she's showing, which is the big money business of food. Here are people who the consumers of the raw food are willing to spend a lot of money for food that is really cheap to produce, which I think is a, a fascinating dichotomy between the, the, the two realms that, uh, that exist in this movement. Um, there's a line that sort of comes really late in the book that I feel like summed up a lot of, the tied a lot of the book together inadvertently, which is, 
she's talking about this place next which is a um like this crazy yeah. restaurant experience where they they pick a theme for the night and then they go do these extreme like the night that she goes was the hunt so everything is related to like how the hunters eat and whatever it's but she has a line as she begins where she, begins that section that says at next you are not a diner eating in a restaurant you are an actor in a play about food and i felt like mm-hmm. you know that's kind of that applies to a lot of these things you know like whether it's preparing bugs or whether it's the raw food that, or the raw milk that you've gotten like a lot of it, it seems like a lot of these extremists and these foodies the the foodie movement is catering to a story of about the food more than it is the food itself, you know, and, and whatever mm-hmm. that story is, whatever that play is that you're creating, you know, whether it's a, a fine dining experience or whether it's a back alley street cart that only you discovered or whether it's the special mushrooms that you helped import to Las Vegas, like it all seems to me like we can eat anything. Like human beings are capable of eating anything except obviously poisons mm-hmm. that will kill us. But you know, like we're we're <laughs> omnivores. Like we that's what makes us a crazy species. Also, der Wiener Schnitzel. I don't think we. we I don't can. think humans can eat der Wiener Schnitzel. No, mm-hmm. you can't yeah. process that. No. Yeah, unless you like to shit glass. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. So it just comes down to, like, we, because we can eat everything, we have to decide what to eat. You know, we have to regulate what we Mm -hmm. eat some way. Or maybe we don't have to, but we do. You know, as cultures, as people, we, we, we have rules about food. Like, every religion has, like, rules about food and sex. It's like, every culture has laws about food and sex. Like, we, we, there's certain areas of life that we create taboos or restrictions on. And so, it seems to me like so much of the foodie movement is about telling yourself a story about food, about what you're eating. And, and then, selling that to other people and convincing them to mm-hmm. you know that this is the right way to eat or the you know the wrong way to eat so and i think as as a as a series of glimpses into the ways that the stories we tell each other are t- tell each other or tell ourselves about food this book is really good i just mm-hmm. i wouldn't put it in the same category as like michael pollan's writing about food which no, is much no, more sort different, of philosophically kind of driven and has yeah. more of a thesis, um, and I tend to like those books more. Uh, I have to say, like, I, I, this this is a good conversation starter, I guess. You you know what I was reminded of is um, our friend Mark Haskell Smith's book Heart of Dankness, yes, which went went into the the world of um, the the growing pot movement, which actually plays a small role in this book as well. Where you know I don't I don't think. Dana Goodyear probably set out to do an investigative piece on every part of the food culture, but just to show, you know, the layman basically, okay, here, here's some of it. Here's, here's a little of what's, what's going on. And so I think there's a little bit of, you know, strictly entertainment, whereas Michael Pollan, I think is, is far more, you know, if you read the omnivore's dilemma or something, it's far more about providing the information that you need to know about your food. Right. And this book, I mean, it just came out and it feels so current. It feels like the backlashes to this movement have not even happened yet. Um, Mm -hmm. So it really feels that she's writing on the, on the edge of, of time almost. But, um, you know, Ryder, to what you're saying, you know, food is, it's such an interesting subject because it's the only thing other than sleep that everyone must do, you know? And so there's no, you know, there's no way around how much... Pajamas! <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to say breatharians, right? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah. But there's a little breatharian breath. in here. There's a little bit about the breatharians in this, <laughs> but which is so weird. Yeah, uh, you know, that like hot topic argument that has come up once in a while in pop culture, which is like, is it harder to lose weight or quit smoking? And, you know, right. you have to eat every day. So changing what you eat is very difficult. You have to confront that story and definition of who you are and where you live and what right. your culture is right. at least a couple times a day, Yeah, which is just so, incredible. I think it's important to find this out now. Uh, strangest thing you've ever eaten. Julia. Um... I don't know that bug taco. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty strange. <laughs> that's pretty. I mean, and it was, that is pretty unusual. Yeah, I mean, it was it was great because half the people in my family are vegetarians now, but we mm-hmm. are you know we're in agreement about open mindedness and no restrictions. Um, so no even my, my sister who is a vegetarian, we were like, we're getting the grasshopper tacos, right? And we all were like, yes. And then we all tried some and then went back to our regular delicious pork tacos. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that was, 
in recent memory at least, that was by far the weirdest thing I've ever eaten that I know of. I don't Rider. really I don't really have something that weird. I mean, the most remarkable thing that I've eaten that I remember like think it was really cool to be do to be eating was in Ghana, actually, going back to Ghana. Um I did like, you know, we we ended up in the bush. I can't even remember the name of the little tiny village that we were in. And we we got, were walking through the woods with the local guy who was taking us around. And um, he was like, do you want to try some palm wine? And in the middle of, you know, the, the jungle, they had had, there were these jugs set up with um, fermenting uh, palm wine. And, you know, it's like there were bugs in it. It was like sitting there. Oh, yeah. mm. And it's like really high alcohol content. But, you know, it was fun. Like, sit there in the middle of the afternoon and be drinking some of this palm wine. Uh, it was really, and it was good. Right. And, like, you know, but it was a risky moment. It was like, should I really be drinking this? Like, don't people die <laughs> oh, from this? Oh, God, it's like, wine. all right, I'm going to do Who it. Cares? You know, <laughs> But that was just a fun, that's, I don't know. I, I can't really think of, but that's alcohol, so I can't really think of any food that, um, bol- No, that's you know, a good weird. one. And it reminds me yeah. of a, a better answer. When I was in Mongolia, I drank uh, fermented horse milk for a couple days. Holy shit. Oh, God. God. Yeah, fresh Jesus. raw fermented horse milk. Um, it's gross. I, I'm gonna. How do I phrase this? I, I'm not entirely certain. I know the horse's anatomy that well. Okay. Where, where does the milk come from? It's a euphemism for semen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I've. I'm gonna have to look at a horse later. I, Horses. I, it must have been nipples, we, right? must have been they weird though for you, Julia. Yeah. Colts. They have nipples. Yeah, right. Nurse like any other. Mammal. They nurse. Right. 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 They're okay. mammals. Horses are mammals, They're mammals. too, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> How about uh, you, Todd? Um, you know, this summer we did this epic road trip to the West, and um, we spent the night in this little town in Utah called Tory, Utah. And uh, they had this restaurant that's listed in all these places that's, you know, one of the places you have to go to eat before you die. Um, And so they had rattlesnake, and I'd never had rattlesnake before, so I got rattlesnake cakes, um, like crab cakes but made of rattlesnake. And I was really hoping that it would be a pretty significant experience, but it just tasted like a veggie burger from Trader Joe's. <laughs> it just it just tasted like the seasoning, uh, and I couldn't even distinguish the meat in in the actual cake itself. Um, yeah, so that might be. The, I mean, that's not that's not all that weird. I suspect a lot of people eat um, you know snake, but you know I I, I haven't been a terribly adventurous uh, species eater. I was talking to a friend of mine, um, who you guys both have met, my friend Agam, and he was—he grew up in Africa, and he was talking about you know people eating, um, uh, um, what the fuck's uh, <laughs> the things with the long necks? Giraffe, giraffe, but people eating giraffe at one of these restaurants like Animal, where they just serve right. everything, and the idea of eating a giraffe is like. It's like eating history, you know? Like that's like eating a dinosaur. Why would you Yeah, it's do like that? eating a dinosaur. But then, you know, it's no different than a bird. A bird is a dinosaur too. But just the mere idea of eating a giraffe, I thought, man, and then what part do you eat? All right, well, thanks everyone. Everybody go eat something weird. I know I'm gonna find the weirdest and then, thing. And then blog about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to find the weirdest thing I can find on Main Street in Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> right now. Mexican food. <laughs> Believe it or not. It's like, there was, I have a friend who came out here one time and he was like, I asked him what he wanted for dinner. He's like, oh, how about Tex-Mex? And I was like, dude, we have actual Mexican food here, not Tex-Mex. Tex-Mex is good though. Yeah. Tex-Mex is not authentic. Well, I mean, this is, is, I, is I was bullshit. trying to wrap up, but whatever. This is what Ryder was saying about authenticity. Is like Tex-Mex is its own authenticity now. It's such an established group of its own. So, like, you know, Chinese food that we know in America today has almost no resemblance to food in China. But if you question the audacity or the authenticity of my delicious General Tso's chicken... Mm-hmm. Cut you. <laughs> Delicious. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Uh, I want to end with a quote that I love that I was okay. talking about when I was reading this book. And it's a quote I saw on the, the there's a restaurant in downtown LA. Which, downtown LA is amazing restaurants nowadays, by the way. If anybody lives anywhere near LA, go 
to downtown if you want good food. And there was a restaurant called Blue Cow, which is not one of the better ones, but it's good. And they have all these quotes like about food all over their walls. And this one I love. And I didn't know who it was by. I couldn't remember. I remember the quote, but I looked it up just now. And it's a quote from somebody named Lin Yutang, who I guess was a Chinese writer. Um, and Part of the Yutang clan. Oh, God. And this is the quote. <laughs> what is patriotism but the love of the food one ate as a child? Wow, that's great. So true. It's a good line. Yeah, that's good. And that's all for this week's episode of Literary Disco. In two weeks, we'll be discussing Jerry Fink's Five Days at Memorial. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter, at literary disco. Thanks for listening. Yeah.